listening to With Woman, a podcast hosted by midwives Sophie and Ashley. Join us as we help you to navigate the transition from womanhood to motherhood and everything in between. With Woman is your unfiltered and raw guide to empowering you to trust the process in hopes that each episode leaves you feeling a little more supported through your journey. Before we get into this episode, a little disclaimer. Although we are midwives, the information discussed in this podcast is not intended to substitute the care or advice of your healthcare provider. And we swear a lot. So here's your warning on that too. Ladies, welcome to your first trimester survival guide. (laughs) Welcome back to another episode of With Woman. Before we jump into this ep, we want to give a trigger warning as we do discuss early pregnancy loss and miscarriage. We as midwives are open to hold space for conversations surrounding loss. However, we do understand that this can be quite triggering for listeners. Yeah. So this episode is everything about your first trimester. The first trimester of pregnancy is definitely a whirlwind. Complete whirlwind. It's full of vomit in your hair, (laughs) secretly ordering mocktails at the bar and trying to hide your pregnancy, feeling like you've been hit by a bus 24-7 your weird little dietary requirements, being deep in your feels. And also holding some mild hostility towards your partner for the simplest things like breathing. (laughs) There definitely also comes mental challenges of how long are you going to feel sick for? How's my life going to change? Is my little baby okay in there? (laughs) But on a positive note, by the time you actually find out you're pregnant, you're probably already halfway through it. We consider the first trimester as conception up until 12 weeks gestation. So by the time you've missed your period, you're already at that four to six week mark. Which is pretty amazing. Thank goodness. Yeah, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) Navigating the first trimester can be challenging for some women, and it's often referred to as the hardest trimester, but we'll let you be the judge of that. It's really easy to feel a bit lost through the process too. The female body experiences so much change during this time that it's really overwhelming adjusting to your new normal and the realization that your life's seriously about to change. So the first trimester can also be one of the most confusing times of pregnancy. Not knowing what tests you need to do, when you need to do them, who should you be contacting, what does this baby actually even need from me? Totally. So this episode has been designed for you navigating the start of your journey in pregnancy. And definitely the circumstances leading up to pregnancies are completely different for everyone, really. Whether it's your planned pregnancy, a very long-awaited pregnancy, it could even be an unplanned pregnancy, a little surprise. (laughs) (laughs) But your reaction to the news probably is going to start from some sort of disbelief followed closely by holy shit, now what do I do? (laughs) What the hell do I do? (laughs) Firstly, the suspicion of a pregnancy is typically indicative by a missed period. So if you suspect there's a little bubba brewing in there, then the first thing to do is pee on a stick or nine. Like Sophie. (laughs) (laughs) They really got me good with the early detection test, the line test. The digital one, because you want to see like the one to two weeks, two to three weeks. Brand marketing is working. (laughs) Yeah, they got me good. So these home urine tests work by detecting the pregnancy hormone referred to as beta-HCG or human chorionic gonadotropin. This is a hormone that is excreted from the trophoblastic cells of the embryo on implantation to the uterus and is measurable in both urine and blood. So usually this 
hormone is detectable 10 days post-conception in what we call your luteal phase of the menstrual cycle. So when testing at home, it's best to test first thing in the morning as this is when your urine is less diluted and therefore the test is more accurate. So once you see the little blue smiley face or the plus sign or the pregnancy sign <laughs> or the one to two weeks, whatever brand you decided <laughs> on getting, <laughs> the first thing you do is make an appointment with your GP. So at the same time, try and figure out when you had your last period because this is one of the first questions your GP is mm. going to ask you. Um, and at your initial appointment with your GP, that'll send you for a blood test version of the urine test that you did at home. Now, the levels of the hormone result that you'll get from your GP definitely vary and it's individually based. Yeah. Most women will have very different levels of beta HCG detected in their bloodstream and it still means that their pregnancy is healthy. So try not to compare yourself to what you see on Dr. Google. Yeah. Or your um, friends yeah. saying that, like, no, my level was, was 5,000 at that, month, yeah. at that gestation. Because at eight weeks gestation, a beta HCG level varies from about 32,000 to 150,000. That is a massive range. range. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely don't be discouraged if your levels are on the lower side of this or on the higher side of this. That just might be normal for you. So, some GPs like to test this every 48 hours apart to see if your levels are increasing and then other gps just like to do a one-off yep you're pregnant your level is good and then we go from there really once you have that double confirmation that you are indeed pregnant your gp is going to send you for about 84 other blood tests there's really a lot <laughs> <laughs> so these are all part of your health screening for the pregnancy and they help to determine if there are any potential risk factors to yourself or your baby um, that we need to be aware of and monitor throughout the remainder of your pregnancy. A group of these tests are often referred to as serology, which is a type of blood test you use to determine the level of immune system response to pathogens present in your body. And this helps to suggest whether or not there's been a past infection or a current infection mm. or your immunity to them. Yeah. So these tests include varicella, which is chickenpox or shingles. And then you'll also on top of that have your blood group checked, your vitamin D levels, your blood levels such as like your hemoglobin, platelets, your platelets count. There's literally like so many. It's really extensive. Yeah, so don't be worried when you get your form and there's like a million blood tests that you have to go for. It's really just they collect it in two or three tubes. You yeah. don't have to have like multiple stabbings. Yeah. <laughs> multiple stabbings. <laughs> Savage. Also, you might feel like there's so many random blood tests that you didn't think you'd have to have like HIV, Hep C, Hep B. And these are across the board. So don't be worried that your doctor's actually sending you for these. It's just part of the screening Routine process. screening. Yeah. <laughs> And um, also, if you're under 25, your GP may also add a chlamydia screen onto the bloods as well. So again, don't feel like your GP is judging you and <laughs> they're sending you for a chlamydia screen because they think you might have an STI. <laughs> it's part of the screening process. <laughs> Another factor to think about, which a doctor will discuss with you, is your family history, especially in relation to medical issues such as a history of high blood pressure within your family, a history of diabetes, any heart conditions, or even allergies that you may have. Again, these are all part of your routine antenatal screening to determine if you're high risk for being diagnosed with any of these conditions throughout your pregnancy. So if your family has an immediate history of diabetes, for example, 
you may also be sent for an early gestational diabetes test, which is awful. Yeah. <laughs> like, so being a midwife, you hear of so many women that come in and they're like, oh, it's the worst test ever. And when I went for mine, I was expecting to feel like really sick and everything. Um, Sophie, you were eating a packet of Skittles at like 9am at work. <gasps> Yeah, but, like, everyone says the drink is the most disgusting thing ever. <laughs> yeah, but this is my point. It's, like, your sugar in... You can tolerate a lot of sugar. Yeah, so I didn't mind the drink. Um, <laughs> but a lot of women say as well that the drink was, like, warm and not yeah. chilled. Yeah, mine was chilled. came straight out of the fridge. So, so. for those who don't know exactly kind of what we're talking about... <laughs> yeah. um, let us explain. <laughs> yeah, let us explain. So... Basically, the glucose tolerance test, it's often referred to as a GTT. 75 gram. It's basically looking at your body's response to having a big sugar hit. So yeah. part of the blood test is that you'll have three different... Stabbings? <laughs> Stabbings. <laughs> We're going to keep... <laughs> oh God. <laughs> That's a technical term, the stabbings. Yeah. <laughs> you will have your blood taken three, three different times, times yeah. in two hours. And you'll also be asked to consume basically a really sugary drink drink it's like syrup it's like flat lemonade essentially so and you have to be fasted for this test so basically what it's doing is looking at your body's insulin response to having a high sugar hit so what we'd expect to see your body do is in response to having heaps amount of sugar your insulin levels rise and then drop your sugar levels to uh, normal ranges which is categorized by a fasting glucose so the one bef- before you have the drink and then compared at one hour and two hours post having the drink yeah so take a book or an ipad or something to keep you busy for those two hours because they don't like you to leave the pathology either yeah yeah you have to sit there so make sure you go to a place that has like a nice little recliner or something so again this test would only be performed if you had a family history of diabetes yeah so you'll get it in your first trimester yeah or if you had a few other medical risk factors risk really factors yeah as well. but then uh, pretty much every woman gets offered this test again at about 26 to 28 weeks gestation um so you'll get it once throughout your pregnancy mm-hmm. but then twice if you're high risk for yeah. gestational diabetes So one of the first questions your GP will ask you during your appointment is, when was your last menstrual period? Which, for a lot of women, you don't know this. Not everyone fully tracks their period. That's true. I made all of my friends download the Flow app. Oh, yeah, I used to have that Just to track it. I wouldn't know either if I didn't track it. Oh, yeah. And there's so many apps these days that can help you out. But for, like, women that aren't planning a pregnancy... If someone was to, and they don't have any apps, if someone was to say, like, when was your last period? You're like, I don't know, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly more than a month ago because you're pregnant. (laughs) So your GP will also want to know how regular your cycle is, as in how many days you have in between each period. So it's important to know if your cycle is regular every month or irregular as your LMP or last menstrual period is usually how we try to gauge when your due date will be. And your last menstrual period is determined by the first day of your last period. So a regular menstrual cycle is considered to be around about 28 days, um, but it can definitely vary from about 21 to 35 days. So if your cycle's irregular, this is where your dating ultrasounds used to determine the estimated due date. Now we say estimate because 
a term pregnancy is anywhere from like 37 to 41 weeks gestation and often women become quite fixated on your due date yeah it's really like an estimated due week or even some women say like it's an estimated due month yeah yeah i'd be referring to it as a month (laughs) i really hard like i tried i had my due date but i really hard tried to say like no I'm definitely probably going to come over because first babies usually do come later. Mm. It's really hard though to not get fixated on that date. Especially especially when you feel average at the end. Yeah. And so many people ask you like, what's your due date? Yeah. And And if you're like, oh, I'm due in May. They're like, no, but what's your date? (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) Well, babies arriving on their due date account for three to five percent. Which, so um, there you go. Just yeah. use your estimated due date as an actual They're estimate. They're most likely guide. not going to come on the due date. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are someone who has an irregular period or someone who has no idea what their last menstrual period is or even when their last period was, this is when the GP will want to send you for a dating scan or an early pregnancy gestation scan. So again, this is optional, but... If you're trying to limit the amount of ultrasounds you have in, a pre- in your pregnancy for personal reasons, a dating scan is probably one of the more important ones to attend. Yeah. And if you really have no idea about your cycle lengths, last menstrual period, you kind of really need to go for a dating scan to actually even get yeah. an estimated due date. So dating scans are typically attended at a minimum of six weeks gestation, but they're definitely more reassuring around the seven week mark. So the purpose of the dating ultrasounds to measure the length of the fetus, which really looks like a jelly bean and you can't really tell it's <laughs> even a baby yeah, yeah. at this point. You're like, oh, uh, what is that? So the dating ultrasound measures your crown rump length um, and this confirms your expected due date and also the viability of the baby. So listening to fetal heart rate, ensuring the pregnancy is actually in the uterus. Yeah, and the crown rump length is basically the top of the jelly bean to the bottom yeah. of the jelly bean. And somehow in an ultrasound, they equate that growth into weeks gestation. So that's how they figure out your due date. Yeah, and the earlier on, so like your dating scan compared to like your 12, 13 week scan is more accurate with your dates because obviously genetics and everything haven't even come into play yet exactly yeah so sometimes in your dating scan some abnormalities come back um you can be diagnosed with an ectopic pregnancy so this occurs in about every one to two in every 100 pregnancies So this is a non-progressive form of pregnancy due to location of the implantation. So this can cause a rupture to your fallopian tubes, and this is where the fetus is implanted. It's different because when it implants into your fallopian tube, as the fetus keeps growing, it doesn't have an area to expand like when it's implanted in your uterus. So when this happens, it can cause your fallopian tube to burst and then this can lead to internal bleeding and that can be life-threatening really. Another form of a non-progressive pregnancy that we may see on a dating scan is a molar pregnancy. There are two types of molar pregnancies, complete and partial. They account for one to two in every thousand pregnancies. So a partial molar pregnancy is where two sperm meet one egg, which causes an abnormal embryo to form. When I say abnormal, I mean in its relation to in relation to its genetic makeup. And a complete molar pregnancy occurs when the sperm meets an egg, but the egg holds no chromosomes within it. And this results in the sperm duplicating its chromosomes and it creates a placenta without actually creating a fetus. 
This tissue then embeds itself, hence the term molar, like a little molar, like in a little molar. <laughs> into the uterus, causing abnormal growth to occur. Now, two to three percent of complete molar pregnancies can result in a rare form of cancer called choriocarcinoma. So there's also a possibility that at your dating scan, there just isn't a heartbeat present. Mm. Um, And this just means that the fetus has stopped growing at a certain point in your pregnancy. There's not always a reason for this. Sometimes it's just completely random. It's nothing that you did. It's nothing that your partner's done. It's really you're that one in four. Now that we've just completely scared you with everything that could go wrong at your dating scan, (laughs) there's definitely some positives to your first trimester and exciting times like... Who do you tell? This is such a personal decision. Yeah, it is. <laughs> well, it's the most confusing thing to yeah. kind of navigate. And it's definitely a personal thing. Totally. Because some women tell like every single person under the sun <laughs> in your first trimester. Yeah. And then other people don't like even like to tell people until like 20 weeks. Yeah. Which is pretty obvious when you're walking down the street usually and you're about 20 weeks pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, where'd that gun come from? <laughs> I remember I didn't put anything on social media until mm. I was about 21 weeks. Yeah. I think... Definitely in this instance, you should definitely just go with your gut, your yeah. gut instinct on things. Yeah. If you want to keep your pregnancy fairly private until you feel most comfortable, then go with that. I don't think there's any like right or wrong way of navigating it. And the societal norm of waiting until 12 weeks to announce your pregnancy was really just established because of the fear and stigma surrounding the discussion of miscarriage. And it's just old and outdated. Yeah, so on average around one in four women miscarry and 85% of these is in the first trimester. So looking at this statistic, I think it's really important that we normalise conversations surrounding pregnancy loss. Personally, I don't think it's acceptable anymore to be saying the wrong things to women when they've had a miscarriage yeah there's so much information out there of what not to say and and how to be supportive yeah and things that can be really hurtful to families that have been through loss yeah saying things like you can have another baby like at least you know you can get pregnant or you've already got two kids so you know at least you've got them yeah you should be happy that you've got them if this didn't work out then that's okay you've got two more yeah that's just not appropriate it just minimizes the emotion behind having such a loss and families that have been through loss they just want you to acknowledge yes what they've lost yeah and it's not like they've just lost a fetus they've lost a baby baby. and they've lost a family member and it's all the could have beens, would have beens. Yeah. The, the thoughts in your head, the you planning your future with this yeah. child. I think, you know, when we talk about who to tell, when to tell, we should feel safe and comfortable enough to be able to share our joy and not hide our grief. Yeah. And our support network should be trusted to experience the journey alongside you. Yeah. And I think a lot of women wait for the 12, 13 week mark. But personally, if you're going to tell people that you've had a miscarriage, then why wouldn't you tell them that you're pregnant? Yeah. Yeah. Share your excitement and your joy. Yeah. If that's how you're feeling. Yeah. So just tell whoever you know will be supportive no matter the outcome of your journey. Yeah. 
Moving on from that, there's more things that your GP will want to go through with you at your first appointment um, or once your pregnancy has been confirmed, really. And a, an important one is the models of care. So this is the care that you're going to receive throughout your pregnancy. And this one, again, it's really personal. Totally. Yeah. And definitely dependent on your geographical location. So like what access you actually yeah. have to these services. Your personality. Personality. Whether or not you have private health insurance and want to use yeah. it. There's a lot of differing factors for this one. Yeah. So the models are all really different to each other and it kind of depends on what you want out of your pregnancy, labor, birth, and then also postpartum because a lot of them you'll get postpartum appointments and everything as well. So just to list them, there's GP shared care, which is only run by certain GPs. So to go to a GP and do GP shared care, they have to be accredited. Mm -hmm. So that's an important one to know if your GP is accredited, because mm -hmm. if they aren't, then that's not an option for you. Yeah. Or you'll need to find an alternate yeah. GP, which you may not have the same relationship with and therefore it may not be worthwhile accessing that yeah. model. Or they might not be close to your home. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of women do go through GP because... Convenience. Yeah, it's convenient. They're easy to get into. They're close to your home. Especially... You know what's that movie that um, <laughs> the adult goes back to his pediatrician? Knocked up. Is it... Oh, yeah, it's knocked up. <laughs> he goes to the doctor and it's his pediatrician and he's like... And he's sitting on the bed. Yeah, yeah. and he gets a lollipop. <laughs> But you know, you might have a family GP yeah, um, that you want to access. <laughs> that you want to access, and because you have that relationship, that might work well for you. Yeah. There's also private obstetricians, so you can have a private OB in the public system, or you can then have them in a private system as well. And there's a lot around. So don't just think if you're going to a private hospital, there's only like one private obstetrician yeah. at that hospital. There's usually at least like five. Do your research and, and feel comfortable enough to, because obviously it's your GP that is your first point of contact for your pregnancy. So it's really on your GP to give you adequate information into what's available and what to access out there. And this includes choosing your doctor and model of care. So if you decide to choose a private obstetrician, they may only give you one option and just be aware that there's definitely more than one yeah. that they can refer you to. Yeah. So do your research. And usually if you have private health insurance, you've kind of already looked into this anyway. Totally. Yeah. There's also birth centers. So these are usually run out of big tertiary hospitals in bigger cities. Um, and sometimes they run by midwives on 12 hour shifts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they run by the midwives that are on the floor. Um, but you'll have to look into your local hospital to see whether a birth center is available. There's also midwifery group practice. <coughs> Gold standard of care. <laughs> Which actually, I was thinking about this the other day. Who made it the gold standard care? Like, is it, was this midwives? That it was said a. This? Ter I think it was a term that was used in a research paper to highlight yeah. the positive outcomes of having. Oh, okay. Yeah, and because MGP. I was thinking about this. Like, is this just like a midwifery mid mid practice? Can we just say it? Like, no, we're gold standard. Care. <laughs> no, whereas I, like private obstetricians would be like, we're gold standard. <laughs> <laughs> like an A star rating. Yeah. We get five stars. <laughs> So yeah, there's midwifery group practice and these can either be caseload or team models. There's also home birth and these are run out of bigger hospitals as well or private midwives can yeah. do these within your home. 
So you can also access a private midwife. So often private midwives have what we call endorsed accreditation. So it means they have some prescribing rights. Uh, you can have a home birth with a private midwife or that private midwife will have access to working in certain hospitals. So it has an out-of-pocket expense, um, but maybe something worth looking into, particularly if you're wanting to avoid being in the hospital setting. You can also birth, obviously, in a public hospital. So each public hospital runs many different models within that hospital, but there's lots of different models within each hospital. So for example, there's young mum groups, models for women with high risk factors, like high BMIs. There's also models for women who have had previous stillbirths. So yeah. this is something that's, I know, being started in a lot of local hospitals recently. There are also models specific to having a vaginal birth after cesarean section or even if you're having a planned Caesar. Planned Caesar. Yeah. So elective yeah. Caesars, you can go through your own model in the hospital. And a lot of hospitals are starting to get continuative care yeah. within these models. Yeah. yeah. So that's the purpose of having these little niche additional models within a public hospital setting is that they can try and provide you with more consistent care from the maternity staff. Yeah, because really, if you're having a planned C-section, you shouldn't have to go through the public system and see a different midwife at every single appointment no. compared to someone who's planning a vaginal birth and got into like a midwifery group practice model yeah. and they get to have this, as you say, a gold <laughs> standard care. I don't say it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, definitely before you go and see your GP, I would look into the different models that are offered around you because... It's ideal to go into your GP appointment, kind of already having an idea of what you want. The hardest part, I think, about the first trimester is navigating what tests you need, when you need them, after your dating scan, really. Yeah, this point can get a little bit confusing for some women, and there's no right or wrong way going about it, to be honest. Yeah, it's just you... different avenues, really. Exactly. Yeah. Once you have that initial GP consult... You've done your screening test, you've had your dating scan. From that point onwards, you don't really need to do any additional tests if you don't want to. However, there are some other screens that you can attend if you feel inclined to. Yeah. So these tests are usually attended between 9 and 13 weeks gestation. And one of the first ones is referred to as a nuchal translucency ultrasound. Now, this is an ultrasound that measures the back of the baby's head, referred to as the nuchal fold, and can be a determining factor for chromosomal abnormalities pending the result. Certain ultrasound places will also combine an NT scan with an NIPT blood test. Now, this NIPT blood test is often referred to as a Harmony, which is actually the brand name of it. And an NIPT um, blood test stands for non-invasive prenatal testing. So basically, it's a blood test taken from the mother that uses DNA to determine risk of the fetus being born with genetic abnormalities. Now, it doesn't account for all possible genetic abnormalities it screens for the most common three and so they are trisomy 21 which is down syndrome trisomy 18 and trisomy 13 yeah 
they all this NIPT blood test also determines the sex chromosomes of the baby so you'll be able to know the gender if you want to know and also some associated sex chromosome conditions so this could be where there is a gain or a loss of an entire chromosome which could result in conditions such as Klinefelter. So a test that a lot of women don't know about is a blood test called PAPA-A. So PAPA-A is a pregnancy-associated plasma protein, and it's found in the maternal blood. So this protein increases as your pregnancy goes on, and then decreases right after delivery, really. It's routinely used for Down syndrome screening in the first trimester of pregnancy, and its decrease compared to a normal pregnancy indicates an increased risk for both chromosomal abnormalities and adverse pregnancy outcomes. Now, all of these additional screens and ultrasounds can be expensive. The blood tests alone can range from about $180 to about $400. They really get you, don't they? They do, plus your ultrasound on top of that. So that's why we're saying they are optional. Obviously, if you've had discussions with your GP and they believe that you may be high risk for certain conditions, then it may be worthwhile doing these additional screens, but it's entirely up to you and your personal preference. And even if you're not high risk, a lot of women just like to know that the pregnancy is progressing well or that they just want to see the baby at an ultrasound because if you get your dating ultrasound... It can be a really long time in between any other ultrasound. Yeah, well, it is a long time, isn't it? Yeah, before you get to hear your baby's heartbeat or anything like that. So a lot of women like to get these done just so they can see their baby really again. Yeah, so your healthcare provider will discuss with you the findings of your results. If there is anything that looks high risk or it is of concern, then there'll be further tests that leading on from this. Yeah. During your first trimester, I think... One of the most important things as well is your diet, your lifestyle. Got to make some modifications. Yeah. (laughs) There's some things you need to take into consideration. But it's also a time where you just got to really eat what you can eat. Yeah. When you can eat it. Yeah. Don't worry so much about nutrition. This isn't the the trimester where you are living your best healthy life. Really? Just... (laughs) Okay, probably two things to think about is lay off the booze. (laughs) That's first. Put the margies down (laughs) and lay off the darts and the vapes. Yep. (laughs) So there's some studies that suggest the impact on alcohol in pregnancy is dose related, but we don't actually know what that safe dose is. If If any any at all. Yeah. As we know, Australia has a fairly decent binge drinking problem which was actually reflected in a recent study where australia ranked as one of the highest countries for alcohol consumption in pregnancy the condition that we're actually trying to avoid by reducing alcohol intake is fetal alcohol syndrome and this often occurs in conjunction with poor nutrition and significant alcoholism in pregnancy now fetal alcohol spectrum diagnosis are determined by both physical problems but also problems with behavior and learning difficulties in the baby and eventually as they grow into a child so also with darts vapes ciggies whatever you want to call it um (laughs) there's plenty of resources for smoking cessation in pregnancy including the quit line quit for two which is an app that gives you like little reminders and motivation to continue reducing your smoking if you're a smoker struggling to stop the best thing you can do is just reduce as much as possible Um, but your healthcare provider will go through all this with you as well. Yeah. 
quitting together as well if your partner Smokes. is a smoker yes that's the best thing to try to do um then just quit on your own and there's also um nicotine replacement therapies that are available as well yeah, yeah. that are a good alternate to smoking if you can't quit cold turkey we also just want to mention that we realize that some women may not have been aware that they were pregnant <laughs> this can happen before a lot. finding out they were pregnant and perhaps may have consumed alcohol, other recreational substances in early pregnancy. We just want to say that if you haven't had an early pregnancy loss and all of your levels are looking fine and your dating scan is fine, then your pregnancy is probably unaffected. And so don't stress about this too much, but obviously just make sure you don't continue that use yeah. and from if that point onwards. Yeah. If you're really worried about it, chat to your GP about it. I remember I did a pregnancy test and it came up negative. And then I went to a long lunch and had definitely my fair share of cocktails. <laughs> <laughs> and then two days later, I got a positive pregnancy test. So I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> Some other things to be mindful of are the types of foods you consume in pregnancy. So... There's a food safety brochure that's accessible online that's released by the government that gives you, it kind of is like a traffic light system of green, orange, red of foods that are safe, foods you should be mindful of and foods that you should definitely avoid in yeah. pregnancy. It's really easy to read actually and it has yeah. like little tables and everything too. So what we're kind of wanting to avoid is a condition called listeriosis. Listeriosis is caused by the bacteria Listeria, which is often found in the environment, so like in soil, um, in raw foods, or poorly prepared foods. And this can be quite detrimental to pregnant women and the outcomes of pregnancies as well. Yeah. Pregnant women are actually 10 times more likely to get Listeria than other adults. But having said this, the incidence of Listeria in Australia is actually quite low. Like in my practice, I've only seen it once. I think it's like one, I think it's about 80 people a year in the whole of Australia get significant. Yeah unwell from listeria i've only seen it once and that was because a chicken shop accidentally their freezer broke and they didn't know it broke over the weekend Ooh. and that was actually a lot of pregnant women came through our local hospital with that <laughs> it was a good chicken shape yeah. all ate that. yeah <laughs> so so some boy voids voids <laughs> Voids. So some foods that you definitely should avoid are rock melon. The rock melon's so weird. Like it's so yes. random. It's the one I always remember because I remember as a student midwife reading like all of this information, textbook or whatever, and I was like, rock melon yeah, like so rock random. Melon. You can have watermelon. Yeah. You can have rock melon. And you can have um honeydew? I was about to say the green one. That's rock melon. That's no. <laughs> What's the green one? Honeydew. Honeydew. <laughs> I don't know my fruits very Listen well. Listen to the words, they're coming out of my mouth. <laughs> I swear I'm a midwife. <laughs> so also avoid raw foods, soft serve ice cream. Yeah, so no 70 cent cones for a Macca's. <laughs> Actually, I cannot believe they're 70 cents now. Yeah. They used what? to be 30 cent cones. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, like tangents. Again. Um, also foods like. Um, cold cooked ready to eat meat yeah like deli hams yeah sorry you can't have prosciutto on your little cheese platters um soft cheeses they do say that 
you know, cured meats, soft cheese, fresh sushi, if bought from reputable places, it's probably okay to ingest, but you are treading on that very yeah. fine line. So it's like, do you really want to like risk it for the biscuit? Probably. And like, what kind of biscuit are you getting here? Like, <laughs> one in one time soft cheese, event. Like, <laughs> Also avoid um, like ready-made salads. Yes. Cause you don't know how long they've been sitting in like deli windows. For yeah. And, and, like and be mindful also of, reheating your meals and your leftovers yeah so like if you've got leftover thai chinese just be really careful i'd probably be give it to your partner yeah actually i'd probably give it to them too <laughs> um considering your diet's probably pretty average in the first trimester it'd be worthwhile considering having some form of supplementation which a lot of women always want to take during their first trimester yeah. anyway to just yeah. give them all those extra goodies i don't think supplements need to be continued throughout your pregnancy unless you're deficient in something which again we'll find out in those first trimester screening bloods because after this first trimester you can probably adopt your normal eating routine and incorporate the nutrients and the vitamins that you get from these supplements within your normal diet like your good vegetables and fruit and everything so folate is really important in the first trimester it's the natural form of vitamin b in particular b9 the synthetic version of this is folic acid the daily dose should be around 400 micrograms so the importance of folic acid intake in pregnancy is that it prevents neural tube defects which are conditions that affect the spinal cord and brain of the baby these are conditions such as anencephaly, which is where the baby's born without parts of, of the brain or skull, and spina bifida. Now, you can take a single folic acid tablet instead of incorporating it into a multivitamin. Otherwise, you can yeah. get it from your diet. Yeah. So diet-wise, foods that are higher in folate are leafy green veggies such as spinach, broccoli, asparagus, legumes. legumes. Yeah. Vegemite. Which this one I did not know. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of women in their first trimester, they're it's just living on off the front on toast. of the label. Is it? Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's like vitamin B9. How often do you read your Vegemite label? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's current, but like I've definitely, it's on there. So apparently like a single serve of Vegemite on toast, which is probably what you're eating predominantly yeah. in the first trimester. We'll get onto that in the reason why in a second. But yeah, that can be your daily dose of folate. The reason why they actually, fun fact, the reason why they actually introduced folic acid intake was because they found that after the Second World War, I think, everyone was starting to eat, like that's when processed foods became really popular and they started to be manufactured and they realised that people's diets were quite poor and so they incorporated this supplementation. So folic acid was decreasing. Yeah, and resulting in, you know, neural tube defects yeah. because... Um, women weren't ingesting like the right food so that's how that supplementation became a, a thing well, that was a fun fact i didn't know that <laughs> um you can also find folate in like bananas strawberries some cereals also you can get the folic acid tablets on their own and they're really small because in the first trimester the Couple last thing you want to do <laughs> ew ash <laughs> well no you don't want to be doing that either but you also sometimes just cannot eat a giant multivitamin tablet even the thought of swallowing it just makes you want to be sick i feel i feel like a lot of women really struggle oh a lot of people in general struggle to take those big horse 
how oh, like, I'm like things. even taking Panadol. I'm like one Panadol at a time. Especially like the really cheap generic brands. Oh that yeah, are and super they're super powdery. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you just buy the better brand, and it's like the smaller coated in sugar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> easier to down. Um, but in saying that, some pregnancy multivitamins can be expensive. Yes. Yeah, they really get you. Yeah, they can be. They can cost around or more than a dollar a day for one dose. So, I think just be mindful. Figure out what's right for you and your yeah. financial circumstances. Yeah. Again, your GP will go through with you at Absolutely. your appointment. Another thing that you need to be mindful of in your first trimester is your intake of caffeine. So. We say around about 200 milligrams daily, which is usually about one to two cups of coffee, depending if you're having like double shots, everything like that. <laughs> yeah, if you're having like... If you're having one cup of coffee, but with three shots of coffee, no. You've exceeded your limit. You've exceeded. <laughs> so evidence isn't super conclusive, but we do know that caffeine does cross the placenta to the baby and their ability to break it down is much slower. However, small amounts are fine. So... Don't be going completely ham with the energy drinks either. Yeah. And also be mindful that chocolate yeah. is included in this caffeine intake. And tea. Yeah, and tea. So mm. if you're someone that has like a coffee in the morning, chocolate throughout the day, a tea at night, you might even throw like an energy drink in there. <laughs> you've gone too no, far. No grana. No. You don't need a V. No, you don't. Actually, you probably shouldn't be drinking that at all throughout no. your pregnancy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just be mindful of... Coffee, tea, chocolate, they all contribute to your daily intake of caffeine. A very uh, commonly asked question for pregnant women is what medications are safe to consume in pregnancy? Um, Pain relief wise, the main thing that you should be avoiding in terms of over-the-counter medications are the class of anti-inflammatories or non-steroidal medications. So these include Nurofen, Voltaren, Mm. Ponstan. Um, They actually inhibit the production of prostaglandins and can cause a premature, the premature close of the ductus arteriosus in the baby's heart, which is one of their main blood vessels. And this is particularly important um, in women who are actually in their third trimester. So it's um, definitely the whole way through your pregnancy. You should not be consuming uh, this class of medications, but particularly after 30 weeks and beyond, 100% do not use them. Yeah, Panadol, paracetamol, that's safe safe during pregnancy. Um, But if you're having to take a pain relief for anything during your pregnancy, you should be contacting your healthcare provider. Yeah. For the reasons of why you're taking it anyway. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. There's some great resources in regards to safe consumption of medications in pregnancy. And the first one we want to mention is MotherSafe. Um, MotherSafe is a resource that's run out of the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick here in Sydney. They are a group of midwives, pharmacists, and doctors that determine what's safe for women to consume in pregnancy. And this goes as far as prescription medications, street drugs, which they're not, they're, <laughs> FYI, they're not safe, over the counter medication, vitamins, as well as topical treatments. So, like beauty consumables, yeah, hair that's dye, something that everyone wants yeah, to know about. Ten Can products, I my hair? Botox retinol vitamin a all of those sorts of things and they have a lot of fact sheets on their website as well yeah and they also have a 
a number that you can contact Monday to Friday if you if you physically need to speak to someone over the phone to have some reassurance. I feel like a lot of um, GPs, or in particular pharmacists, when you go to a pharmacy, they're very risk adverse. So something that actually might be safe for you to consume in pregnancy, you may have been asked, you may have been told that that's not safe. So if you ever need to seek that clarification to be 100% sure, then definitely access Mother Safe. They're a great resource. I pretty much tell every single woman, if you're yeah. having to take any medication throughout your pregnancy, yeah. just call Mother Safe first, double check that it's safe, yeah. because if it's not safe, they can give you alternative exactly. medications. Yeah. Um, and they'll let you know like dosages that are safe and everything yes. too. Yeah. Um, nationwide, there's also Health Direct, which is a 1-800 number, I believe, so you can call them. And if you're living in Western Australia, there is a very similar resource to Mother Safe called OMIS, so you can access them as well. I think one of the biggest questions we get asked as midwives is about exercise, because women really want to stay healthy throughout their pregnancy. Do they continue doing what they're already doing? What's safe during pregnancy exercise wise? So pretty much the general rule is continue your normal exercise, but definitely just listen to your body. Yeah, for yeah. sure. This is an individual one, really. There's been no correlation between exercise and pregnancy loss. So that's a really important point to make. But there's definitely things to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a few things to just kind of be mindful of with your exercise routine is to avoid exercising in high temperature areas and like in humidity. So for example, no hot yoga. You can't go into the sauna box. No. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you warm up and definitely cool down. Yeah. And limit jumping as this increases the load on your pelvic floor, which you would have learnt in our previous episode. <laughs> Probably also refrain from doing things that could cause injury, specifically to your abdomen as well. So um, like horse riding, yeah. skiing, yeah, you, know, you probably shouldn't be doing those that. kind of extreme sports. Just mm. avoid those while pregnant. Err on the side of caution. Yeah. So really, if you're already like. If you're a marathon runner, yeah, you should be able to continue running mm -hmm. until you can't anymore. Yeah, yeah. So just listen to your body. Yeah. Back it off when you feel like you need to. Yeah. If you do something and you're like, oh, like that kind of is a little bit sore, or I mm -hmm. can't do it as well as I used to. Yeah. Just back off. Yeah, yeah. Or stop altogether if you feel like you need to. But yeah, it's definitely a um, individual circumstance kind of thing when it comes to exercise i reckon totally there's no right and wrong there's yeah. no textbook eventually you'll start modifying your exercises if you're into your pilates yoga continue doing that yeah that absolutely. can be really good um for like breathing techniques as well during yeah, pregnancy. Totally. one of the hardest parts of managing the first trimester is definitely managing your early pregnancy symptoms and then Ooh, coping yeah. with like, when they go away yeah <laughs> oh yeah that's a big one I think that's not only a physical demand, but it's a mental demand as well. Well, you're not only trying to hide the fact you feel like shit. Yeah. Because you're not ready to tell people that you're pregnant. Yeah. So you, therefore you're having to like sneakily be unwell. <laughs> yeah. When like really when you're sick, like the first thing you want to be like is like, I feel like shit. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I remember really early on... I was on call for like a weekend and I got multiple phone calls overnight and then I had to go in at 6am for an induction and I remember being in the car on the way to work like I physically don't know how I'm going to get through this shift and I stopped in and got a frozen coke from Becca's on the way 
And then when I got to work, alarm bells thing, ringing for well, everyone. Well, the first thing I thought was like, everyone's going to think I'm pregnant or they're going to judge me and think I'm hungover. <laughs> <laughs> but really, it's really hard in the first trimester, especially when every woman has different symptoms yes. too. Yeah. And some women have none at all. And if you're that woman, oh, yeah. hats off to you. But that can be hard as well because you're constantly pregnant. questioning like, mm. why don't I have symptoms? Yes. Is the baby okay? True. Yeah. Very so it's true. just, it's a massive mind game. But we've come up with a couple of different early pregnancy symptoms. You might have these, you might not. You might have them for a couple of weeks. You might have them throughout your whole pregnancy. Some common symptoms are breast tenderness, so sore boobs essentially, headaches, food aversions. I remember I became a vegetarian throughout my first trimester. Yeah, Yeah. I have heard that. Lots of aversion, food aversions to um, red meat. Yeah, oh, I could not even look at red meat. Even the Mm. thought of having it was just disgusting. Um, You have an increased sense of smell. Increased basal body temperature. Yep. Fatigue, lethargy, like that's huge. You're always tired. Yeah. And take your naps whenever you can. Yeah. Don't feel bad about napping. Emotional changes like irritability. You might feel a bit flat, just generally a bit blah. You might be a bit anxious. And these emotional changes are definitely attributed to the surge of hormones that your body experiences, particularly in regards to the hormones of estrogen and progesterone. You could also have acid reflux, which this affects about 30 to 50% of pregnancies. And it's not only just in the first trimester Mm. for some people. So it's caused by the relaxation of smooth muscles and the delay in gastric emptying. And then eventually as the baby gets bigger and you get further on in your pregnancy, you just really, your stomach runs out of room. So mild reflux can be managed by just modifications to your diet. So these include just eating smaller, more frequent meals, um, not Not eating like within a couple of hours of going to bed, um, propping yourself up. Not eating certain foods that are like really acidic. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll kind of learn these foods throughout your pregnancy. There are also some just over the counter um, medications that you can take to help reduce your symptoms of acid reflux. Quickies. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I should have really been like a banner woman for quickies throughout my pregnancy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My Lansoral Gastro Gel. Um, can also be used to help that refluxy feeling. Some people say bananas are helpful too. Oh, I didn't yeah. try that one. But it might be hard to get a banana down. We used to use Zantac or Renitidine to manage, but it's since been discontinued as this was found to have carcinogens. Yeah, within yeah. them, cancer-causing properties. Yeah. So we now use Nexium, but all of these are prescription only. So it's really, if your acid reflux is really not manageable yeah. and really impacting on and your again, day-to-day life. Your healthcare provider will go through these with you anyway. Now the number one oh, hardest <laughs> symptom of all. Nausea. Nausea. <laughs> it's a nausea. I'm nausea. Nausea and vomiting. Now, this affects 70 to 80% of pregnancies. It's often referred to as morning sickness, but 100% is all day sickness. Yeah. It's not just in the morning. I was vomiting at like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. That's awful. I remember sitting down at dinner one night and my partner had cooked me like a vegetarian um, spaghetti. And I was like, this is amazing because all I wanted was a vegetarian food. And I started eating it, ran to the bathroom, threw up, and I was like... Cool. Yeah, I can keep eating. (laughs) 
Oh, you kept eating? Yeah, and then I just kept eating. (laughs) But that's the thing, like, it's not just morning sickness for most women. No. Yeah. So we've devised a few little tips and tricks for managing nausea and vomiting in pregnancy since it affects so many women in the first trimester. Now, the natural remedies that we've put together are, number one is ginger, so in any form. You can get them in, like, tablets, tea, tea, sucking on things, like, always was walking around with a chopper chop. Um, Lifesavers are in demand, mentos, but they might be... It might, be a bit you can get like the fruity mentos yeah, ones. True. Yeah, true. Um, acupuncture and acupressure, but make sure the place that you go to is accredited to do this because during pregnancy, there's definitely areas that you should be avoiding with acupressure. Yes, yeah. particularly early on yeah, in pregnancy. Yeah, particularly in your first trimester. Peppermint aromatherapy might be helpful for you. So just essential oils, just peppermint oil straight under your nose just continue sniffing that just make sure with essential oils that again they're safe during pregnancy yeah so peppermint oil we know is safe vitamin b6 which it won't stop you vomiting but sometimes it can help so 25 to 50 milligrams daily um, but definitely no more than 200 milligrams and worst case scenario if you're really just not coping with the nausea symptoms or you're continuously vomiting then you can again get a prescription from your healthcare provider for medications such as Maxilon or Zofran and they can help with these symptoms and also if you're not keeping any food down fluids you can always go to the hospital and get IV therapy yeah. for fluids. So keep this in your back pocket pocket for if you've gone for a really long time without keeping anything in your tummy and yeah. you're starting to feel symptomatic of that. And when we say symptomatic, we mean you're starting to feel really dehydrated, your lips are chapped, feeling really lethargic, a little bit dizzy, yeah. spots in your vision. If, that, if those symptoms are ongoing, then you do need to access the hospital resources. And there is a condition called hyperemesis or HD. And this condition is severe or uncontrollable nausea and vomiting in pregnancy. And it's often it has significant impact on the mental Mental health of the woman yeah yeah yeah. it's awful it is and a lot of hospitals actually have a policy now revolving around hyperemesis in pregnancy another couple little tips obviously just eat when you can yeah carbs are life hide snacks everywhere but make them really (laughs) bland so like potato chips fries Potatoes, just in general. Yeah, and um, eating whenever you can, even if it's throughout the night. Sometimes Mm. if you just get up and you're feeling a little bit sick, but you can get something down. Mm. I remember I woke up one night and I had a half-eaten carrot on my bedside table (laughs) because all I could find in the fridge (laughs) in the middle of the night was a carrot. And I knew I needed to eat something. I was thinking along the lines of like really greasy fast food, but yeah, if you we were just talking about being unhealthy in the first trimester and you're eating carrots. Bland biscuits, they yeah. can help, like bread, crackers. yeah, bread, pasta. And also just try to stay hydrated. It's really important to try and stay as hydrated as you can. So definitely 
take a little drink bottle with you. If you can take a drink bottle that has a straw in it, that's even better. So you can just constantly have small sips of water throughout the day, just whenever you can. If you're taking big big gulps of water, that's going to come straight back up for sure. And don't just try to literally scull a bottle of water because you're just going to, you're already weeing enough as it is. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's very true actually. Just makes it worse. (laughs) But try to just definitely change it up every single day as well if you're struggling to drink water. Yeah. I lived off frozen Cokes, watermelon crushes from Boost. (laughs) I even got Deliveroo a watermelon crush one day. Won't tell my partner that because it's like delivery fee of like six bucks. (laughs) (laughs) It's a $15 drink. (laughs) I think too putting like a little bit of flavor in your water sometimes – Women yeah. just despise the taste of water yeah. in pregnancy. Like a so, lemon slice. Yeah. Cordial. Cordial. Little bits of cordial. Hydrolates really good. Yeah, just anything that's going to help you get the fluids down, really. And change your flavours as well, because if you yeah. vomit the day before and you have that memory of that yeah. taste making you feel ill, then you probably need to mix it up the next day. It's like when you've had a big night and you're drinking like <laughs> I've never drinking to sunrises <laughs> and then the next day you have like orange juice oh, and you're like, no way. Yes, I don't know. Obviously we need to be mindful too of constipation. Oh yeah, that's, that's a big one. Yeah. The bloating in the first trimester is just food. Just so you know. <laughs> we got a little friend. We got a little friend now. My son's just waking up from his nap. He wants to have a little chat. <laughs> but really, just to summarize, we understand that the first trimester can be really hard. It's so hard, not just physically, but it's a mental game as well. It's not only like a physical battle, but I never expected to find the mental side of things hard because... You're feeling sick all the time and you feel like you can't do anything well. So, like, going to work was a struggle. Eating meals was a struggle. Sleeping was a struggle. And then the unknown of, like, how many weeks am I going to have to deal with this for? Am I going to be someone that's going to end this at, like, 12 weeks, 20 weeks? And for a lot of women, for most women, really, it does get better in your second trimester. Absolutely. Yeah, so hang in there. You will, doing... you will have days as well where your symptoms are completely gone oh, and you yeah. think, oh my gosh, something's happened. Especially if you're in, you're in between having a dating scan and your 10 to 13 week scan. If you're in that middle point and starting to feel really good, then you have anxiety about questioning like whether your pregnancy is yeah. still ongoing. It's just, it can really play, yeah, like you said, mind games yeah. on your mental health. I think, you know, you just have to really, we always say this, but you just have to trust the process and trust that your body knows what it's doing if something's wrong that you'll know about it yeah and the symptoms usually come back the next day yeah <laughs> and then you're like oh god <laughs> but really just you got to get through that first trimester because the second trimester is coming and that's where all the fun starts yeah that's yeah. when you start feeling movement that's when you're meant to get the glow <laughs> i never got the glow <laughs> But I really, pay I pay for the glow currently. <laughs> <laughs> but really, just talk to people, get advice about what's helped other women and lean on your support system because they're the ones that are going to help you out when you need it. It's a wild ride and we hope that this episode's really just given you a few tips to make it easier for you and your family. 
So thank you for listening to this episode of With Woman. We hope you found this useful for your journey and you can find us on Instagram at withwoman.thepodcast. So flick us a follow and get amongst it. You'll find our latest episode updates there and also please feel free to slide on into our DMs if there are any topics you'd like us to discuss in the future. That's it for us. Bye. Bye.